Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to In the City. I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacroix. And this week, Dave, we talk about Russia. Of course, last week saw the second anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And with Western governments all trying to figure out how to continue to shore up support, there's this debate that's emerging around possibly seizing some of the Russian assets that were frozen around the world to channel that money into Ukraine. And it's causing something of a row between governments and banks around the world. As you say, Dave, it's been 24 months that this war has been ongoing. And it's very clear that Ukraine is also becoming more desperate for funding, especially as aid from the US is not being unlocked for now. Yes. And we all know about the relative failure of the Ukrainian counteroffensive last year. So governments are really agonizing about what can be done to give Ukraine the support it needs. And Rishi Sunak, I saw, wrote an op-ed in the Sunday Times saying that Western nations need to be more aggressive in actually seizing those frozen Russian assets and then channeling that money back to Ukraine. Yeah, the problem is that if you're a bank or if you're in financial services, you wonder where this ends. So a lot of them are pushing back and they're warning the UK government that if, if there's not the right law, it's very difficult to just press the button and seize billions of pounds worth of Russian assets. That's right. They're worried about getting snarled in legal disputes. They're worried about the reputation for London as a centre if governments can just seize assets like this. And Rishi Sunak says in his uh, column that there needs to be a lawful way of doing this. Um, is there, in fact, a lawful way to seize tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of another country's money. That's what we need to dive into in this episode. So with us for this is Stephanie Baker, senior reporter on Bloomberg's investigations team. And Stephanie, you've also been calling all of your little black book, all the contacts, because you're writing a book on this. Yeah. Uh, I've spent uh, the past six months deep into sanctions against Russia. Um, My book uh, is coming out later this year. It's called Punishing Putin Inside the Economic War Against Russia. Um, So I've been talking to everyone from oligarchs to U.S. officials, people in Brussels, London, devising these policies to try to slow down uh, Russia's advance in Ukraine. So, Stephanie, you are the expert in trying to understand oligarchs, especially all of this Russian money that for a long time was in London that we thought maybe has left. But where are we? Did, Did the sanctions work as we thought they would? There are two buckets of Russian money that have been frozen as a result of sanctions. There's the oligarch sanctions, which are the mansions and the yachts and the private jets. And for any oligarch with assets in London or EU or the U.S. with those sort of assets, those are grounded. Those are frozen. And there's a second pot of money, which is the Russian central bank reserves, and that was that's a, a pot of about $300 billion that was frozen within days of Russia's invasion in a very unprecedented move. And when Rishi Sunak is talking about seizing Russian assets, that is the pot of money he's talking about. He's not talking about the oligarch assets. 
you would need to prove that there has been a crime of either sanctions evasion or money laundering, and therefore you could seize those assets as the proceeds of a crime. Um, and that is happening in the U.S. with all, some oligarch assets. The this Russian central bank funds is a, a much bigger pot of money, so much more consequential. And it is not subject to court. The people who are pushing this idea are saying it would be allowed under the international law called countermeasures, which is a state-on-state -state action, and it would not challenge the, the whole concept of sovereign immunity. Countermeasures is a part of international law that's different from sanctions. It's all about compensating victims, and there's precedent for that but certainly not precedent in terms of the scale of the money we're talking about right now. So, Stephanie, I remember when the central banks, there was a, sort of a coordinated announcement, wasn't there, about freezing those assets, the $300 billion that you just mentioned, right after, uh, in just in the days after the invasion of Ukraine. And I remember talking to a senior official at the Bank of England, and they said it was like they were actually trying to engineer a crash in the Russian economy. And, of course, the ruble fell sharply at the time, but, of course, is since recovered. And the and the Russian economy seems to be doing just fine despite that action. So could you explain a little bit about the thinking behind that originally seize, uh, freezing those assets and, and why they don't seem to have really changed the game in terms of Russia's actions and the fate of Russia's economy? Well, the real reason is because Russia is an energy superpower. It exports so much oil and gas. Now, Russia's gas exports have fallen precipitously as a result of Europe weaning itself uh, off of Russian gas. But it is still um, a major, it is this world's second largest oil exporter. So it was able to earn an enormous amount of money in, the, in 2022 as a result of high oil prices, in part sparked by his own invasion. So that's why it didn't have as much of an effect as some thought it would. But I, I would stress that I think it is a huge deal that they did this, and it is a huge pot of money, and it was not something that Putin was counting on. It was a surprise. And if you look at what happened with the Russian central bank funds, he was preparing for this day for many years. He had shifted the Russian central bank assets out of dollars into euros, thinking that Europe would be too divided and wouldn't be able to move. And I think he was taken by surprise on this. And I think although the Russian economy has rebounded, the, the Western coalition has moved to try to cap his oil uh, revenues with mixed results. But I, I think that this pot of money is incredibly important and they want it back. And we've just seen, obviously, after the death of Alexei Navalny, another wave of sanctions, both from Europe and from the United States, a whole new raft of measures. Are any of these going to have any impact now, or is it just more of the same? It was a very long list. Some of the, the entities that were targeted, I read, and I thought, why did it take you two years to do this? Um, you know, defense manufacturers... You know, certain individuals, they should have sanctioned. Right. I, th I thought there was nothing left to sanction. In the exactly. Sense of, I was surprised. I was, you know, entities I'd never really heard of, but they should have sanctioned the entire Russian military industrial complex, and they didn't. And I've asked questions to officials on this. Why didn't you? And I think the answer I get is that, oh, some of these Russian factories are producing other things that are important to the world economy. But I think they realize that they really need to be much more aggressive and really shut down Russia's ability to produce weaponry that are, is ending up on the battlefield in Ukraine.
So, Stephanie, why is it so controversial now what Rishi Sunak is actually proposing? Is it the seizing and giving to Ukraine? And is that a legal problem or are there two school of thoughts on how dangerous this could be? So there, there's a few misconceptions about this. Under the international law of countermeasures, which is what everyone says there is a legal precedent for doing this, it is not for providing military aid. It is only for reconstruction. So you could use the money to help war veterans, rebuild hospitals, bridges, and all those things are important in terms of Ukraine's ability to withstand Russian assault. But I think that there are two schools of thought on this. One is that we passed the Rubicon when we froze the reserves in the first place, and that if there are concerns about the stability of the dollar or the euro or the yen, then when the Western coalition froze those, that pot of money, that's when the real concern would be, and you didn't see anyone moving away from those currencies. There's another school of thought that says the freezing is okay. It's the real danger is when you actually seize those assets. Now, what Rishi Sunak was proposing was using the interest on those assets. It's very similar to what the EU has been trying to do with their windfall tax. They looked at using the interest. They decided that was not legal, that the only way to do it was to tax that interest. So they weren't actually seizing the money. There is a school of thought of like, you tax it, you seize the interest, it's all violating the, the principle. And so why not just seize the whole pot? Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The article that Rishi Sunak wrote, I thought there is this contradiction in the middle of it, isn't it? Because he talks about the need for Russia to lose this in order this war in order to preserve a rules-based, what they call the rules-based international order. But that's exactly the problem with this manoeuvre, isn't it, on these assets, that it there isn't a precedent, it isn't according to the rules, and many people deem it to be illegal. So how do you think the West are going to be able to reconcile those that contradiction? I've interviewed three very prominent people involved in pushing for this proposal. Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, Phil Zelico and Bob Zolik, two veteran Republican officials. And they, I think, put it the most succinctly when they wrote a foreign affairs story about this. And their phrase was, bank robbers should not expect banks to honor their safe deposit boxes. And and I think that's that gets to the heart of the matter, that Putin can't expect the rules-based order to be followed if he's not following the rules-based order himself. He has violated that principle. And there is a precedent for this. The one that most people point to is Iraq, 1991, the UN Security Council set up a fund freezing Iraqi assets to compensate victims of the Iraq invasion of Kuwait. And they paid out more than 50 billion over many years. The problem we have now is that There is no consensus on the UN Security Council because of Russia and China. And folks like Bob Zolik will say, well, that you can't just say you can't use the international legal system because Russia and China won't agree, that there has to be an, a, another mechanism for doing that, and that there there is a possibility of setting up some sort of international institution, whether it's through the World Bank or something else, 
where there is a process, and it's not just handing over $300 billion to Ukraine immediately. It is putting it in a fund, allowing claims to be made with a transparent process, and there is an international kind of oversee- overseeing of the whole, the way the assets are handed out. But Stephanie, politically, so if this gets seized, and I remember at the time when the sanctions were put in place, 60% of the people that we spoke to were 100% in favor, and then the ones that maybe worked in more difficult countries said, "This, you know, what does it mean if I'm a big company in China, and what if something happens politically in China? Does it mean that my assets are frozen? So does the UK government need to think about the, I guess, unintended consequences of them doing trade with countries that may not share our values at all time? Yeah, that's a big one. I think that the opposition to the this, the seizing of, of Russian assets, often the argument is that what happens to the Western companies that are still in Russia? And I would argue they should not be expecting to get those assets back. Uh, and I think it's unrealistic for them to think that they will. I think that, that eventually, regardless of what the West does, Putin will move against those assets. I think it's uh, naive to think that they can get any of that back. And, you know, yeah, there is a broader, I guess, uh, argument about what this does with China um, in terms of Western companies in China. But the fact of the matter is China needs the U.S. dollar. And any country that that has a trade surplus needs access to fully convertible currency with deep capital markets, and that is the United States and and Europe and the euro. I mean, but this is one of the things that people are raising in objection to this, isn't it, saying that an action like this, a unilateral action or or the West acting without the agreement of of the entire global community would undermine the dollar and the dollar's status. Because if you can't be sure that your dollars are safe in other central banks around the world, then why should you keep those assets? you, You mentioned at the beginning that Putin had moved a lot of the assets into euros. But do you think this this warning is has got any credibility that somehow seizing these assets would shake the foundations of the of the dominance of the dollar? Well, that is why there's been such a push to have the G7, the group of seven, move in unison so that it's not any one country sticking their neck out, that you would have the world's major reserve currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound, and therefore it wouldn't be seen as a unilateral action. David Cameron has come out very strongly on this. He's been one of the most prominent figures to come out early on and argue for it forcefully. But the UK doesn't have that much. The vast majority of the assets are in Europe. They happen to be at Euroclear. So Europe is absolutely essential to this. And, and the fact the, that, I mean, are the Europeans going to get on board with it then? Is that where the sticking point for this is going to be? Because the European Union has struggled, of course, with the difference of opinions, say, between Hungary and France on this issue. But uh, could we see the G7 members of Europe agree on this? So you're absolutely right. Europe is essential and there is division. France, Germany, Italy are more suspicious of this. The ECB, Christine Lagarde, has been also very against it because of concerns about what it would do to the euro. But there are others within the EU that are very supportive of it and think that it makes absolutely no sense for the West to be sitting on this pot of money. No one thinks anyone is going to give this $300 billion back to Putin. And frankly, it's hard to see in any immediate term when Russia will agree to pay war reparations. 
There are a lot of interesting ideas being floated now about how you could use these assets as collateral, still being debated, and maybe that is the ultimate solution. Is there some financial engineering that can get around some of the legalities that are holding back European countries? Um, I think it's going to take some time, but I think as the war drags on, I think given the fact that the amount of money Ukraine requires is so enormous. It, it, it'll, it'll be very hard to ignore this pot of Russian money and use Western taxpayers' funds instead. But Stephanie, you could argue that sanctions so far have not really deterred Putin and his resolve of getting Ukraine. So would this make a material difference on the Ukrainian side of winning the war? I've talked to the Ukrainians on this. I mean, the the latest World Bank estimate is that it will cost $486 billion to rebuild Ukraine. And the task that they are facing is enormous. It is hundreds of bridges, thousands of kilometers of roads, water supply from the Novokakovka dam collapse last year. There's just an enormous amount, electricity substations, what have you. And the argument is that, okay, this money can't be used by weapons, but just being able to rebuild homes and allow people to return is going to increase Ukraine's resilience to resist the Russian attacks. So I think it is important, and I think it doesn't make sense for Western taxpayers to be paying for Ukraine's reconstruction when there's this Russian money on the table. Stephanie, did you think that actually by imposing sanctions on oligarchs, that was supposedly to touch Putin's money, almost to his direct money, because we can't find a bank account, right? Did you think at the time that would have made more of a difference? I was always suspicious of the oligarch sanctions. There are kind of two oligarchs, two sets of oligarchs. There are the the oligarchs that got rich off of Putin directly, either running state-owned companies or getting state contracts, and they were very beholden to him. And then there were the sort of first-wave oligarchs who got rich in the 1990s and had a a slightly more precarious position vis-a-vis Putin. Um, And I've interviewed some of these guys. And I think the the way Putin exercises power is such that it's very hard for them all to band together to try to sort of overthrow him or change uh, who sits in the Kremlin. So I think they could have been a little bit more sophisticated about the way they targeted these guys to try to encourage splits at the top. But they've been rolling out all these sanctions. It's very hard for them to know who's who. Stephanie, with all of the way you've been tracking this, do you see, and the drumbeat on this seizure question seems to be getting louder with Rishi, we've got the British Prime Minister coming out strongly for what we've had Biden mention it. Do you see this now as sort of inevitable and maybe it's dressed up in some of these ways you've talked about, whether it's the interest only at first or financial engineering somehow to make it seem palatable or, or legal and given a legal stamp. But what do the next few months look like? Is this something that's going to happen imminently in your opinion? I think we're going to be talking about it a lot for the next few months. And I think it will happen. I can't tell you when or how long it will take. And I think a lot of that will depend on getting agreement in Europe, because that's where most of the assets are. But I think eventually it will happen in one way or another. Stephanie Baker, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacroix, with David Merritt. It was produced by Summer Saadi. Additional editing by Rishi Bujay-Kul. And special thanks to Stephanie Baker. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.